uh, comes forward to read our scripture, I'd like to lead us in a prayer first. Let us pray. Lord God, words read or spoken like bodies are lifeless unless and until your spirit wind blows in and through these things, these beings, and then they become alive. So may your word be alive to us today as we listen and look for your presence in Christ's name. Amen. Let us now listen, for God may address us in the scriptures. This is Psalm 115, verses 1 to 11. Not for our sake, God, no, not for our sake, but for your name's sake, show your glory. Do it on account of your merciful love. Do it on account of your faithful ways. Do it so none of the nations can say, Where now, O oh, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, doing whatever he wants to do. Their gods are metal and wood, handmade in a basement shop, carved mouths that can't talk, painted eyes that can't see, ten ears that can't hear, molded noses that can't smell, hands that can't grasp, feet that can't walk or run, throats that never utter a sound. Those who make them have become just like them, have become just like the gods they trust. But you, Israel, put your trust in God. Trust your helper, trust your ruler. Clan of Aaron, trust in God. Trust your helper, trust your ruler. You who fear God, trust in God. Trust your helper, trust your ruler. This is from Luke 8, verses 22 through 39, from the message. One day, he and his disciples got in a boat. Let's cross the lake, he said, and off they went. It was smooth sailing, and he fell asleep. A terrific storm came up, and suddenly on the lake, water poured in, and they were about to capsize. They woke Jesus. Master, master, we're going to drown. Getting to his feet, he told the wind, silence, and the waves, quiet down. They did it. The lake became smooth as glass. Then he said to his disciples, why can't you trust me? They were in absolute awe, staggered and stammering. Who is this, anyway? He calls out to the winds and sea, and they do what he tells them. They sailed on to the country of Gerasenes, directly opposite Galilee. As he stepped out onto land, a madman from town met him. He was a victim of demons. He hadn't worn clothes for a long time, nor lived at home. He lived in a cemetery. When he saw Jesus, he screamed, fell before him and bellowed, what business do you have messing with me? You're Jesus son of the high God, but don't give me a hard time. This man said this because Jesus had started to order the unclean spirit out of him. Time after time, the demon threw the man into convulsions. He had been placed under constant guard and tied with chains and shackles, but crazed and driven wild by the demon, he would shatter the bonds. Jesus asked him, what is your name? 
Mob. My name is Mob, he said, because many demons afflicted him. And they begged Jesus desperately not to order them to the bottomless pit. A large herd of pigs was browsing and rooting on a nearby hill. The demons begged Jesus to order them into the pigs. He gave the order. It was even worse for the pigs than for the man. Crazed, they stampeded over a cliff into the lake and drowned. Those tending the pigs, scared to death, bolted and told their story in town and country. People went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Davis and Mary Elizabeth, for the reading of God's word so ably this morning. Jesus said, if I cast out by the Spirit of God demons, then the kingdom of God is at hand. There are stories about uh, Olympic medal winners and studies have been done about who are the happiest and most satisfied with their medals the gold, the silver, or the bronze. And it turns out that the gold medal winners are, are the, the pressure of having done it, they're just so relieved. And the silver medal winners are disappointed that they didn't get the gold. And so it's the bronze medal winners who are just happy to be standing up there on the podium together. They're the happiest. I want to talk to you this morning about accepting the responsibility to stand with, to stand beside. Barry was a classmate of mine in fourth grade here in Jacksonville. He was smaller than average, weak. He wore glasses that were so thick you really couldn't even see his eyes, but they were back in there somewhere. He had no friends, he had very few social skills. We've all been there, you've all had classmates, some, something like Barry. I wasn't particularly mean to him to his face. I pitied Barry, but I did not ever stand with him. I think in virtually every social group there's someone like a Barry, or a category of people like him, people who have a certain appearance or deficit or vulnerability, or maybe really there's nothing wrong with them. They just have committed the sin of being different. 
almost every youth group I've ever been in over the last 50 years has had people who are on the inside and on the outside, little groups or individuals, at least one person like Barry. It's almost a normal part of growing up, isn't it? We've all been there in one side of that equation or another. And while we want to encourage our kids to get over that and to move through that, it almost seems like we adults don't quite know how to do that either, to move through it. It seems like every society you hear about, if you read about other places in the world or other times in history, they've all had some subgroup within their society, some category of their own members that they have had to put on the bottom to label or differentiate in some way. And when times are hard, often they're the ones who get blamed or demonized. Too thin, too fat, too small, too tall. Language is different. Skin is different. They do things differently. They're not as strong. They're not as fast. I think at the very center of Jesus' reinterpretation of the Torah, when he came, he had the authority to reinterpret that word, that law. And the core of his understanding was that the kingdom of God and that the insistence of God is on radical inclusiveness. To be a student of Jesus, therefore, to be a, a disciple, a follower, would be to accept the responsibility to stand with those others, to make connections with those others. You know, I was thinking about this city that I love and you know, we live in a city where we settle for many parts of town that aren't even connected to the city's water system, let alone in deeper ways. That just seems to me a, like a parable, a, a sign of our disconnect, our willingness to settle. Jesus tells the disciples, we're going to go to the other side of the lake, get in the boat. And I would think the disciples would not be happy. They would not want to go there. Why go there? You were called to announce the kingdom of God, you told us, to God's people. Well, we're God's people. We're here. We're in Israel. We're in Galilee. You know, you can't even heal all the people that need healing. We can't even reach all the people, the crowds that are coming. We don't need to go anywhere else. Let's finish the job here first. By the way, God said we would be the light to the nations, so let's get our light shining well. We don't need to go over there. That'll be what God does eventually. And so I'm sure they were not happy campers as they got into the boat. And Jesus fell asleep like Jonah in a storm, but
But eventually he wakes up and he speaks a command to the forces of chaos and death that threaten the boat, threaten the church. This is the church. And he says, my peace, my mastery over the chaos, my care for you, I give you. Not as the world gives its peace do I give to you. I give you my peace. Not only are the waves calmed, but the people in the boat, in the church, are calmed. And the church must stand in awe and must learn to trust that care. And so, after this exorcism of the natural order, Jesus sets foot on the other side. He meets a man who used to live in town who probably had a flower for him in the synagogue when he was born. A man who had a family, had a story, but something happened. Was it something he did? Was it something within him? Something coming out of him? Something done to him? Something that happened in the community for which he was demonized? His community locates the evil and it's in him. And so he's incarcerated, but not remediated. And he gets out of that, in ch those chains, and now he's living alone, like a hermit, out in the tombs. And Jesus encounters him and calms his chaos and gives him peace. And I think Jesus understood that the true focus of the demonic was not in him, but in the man's community who saw him as someone they didn't need, whose gifts they could do without, whose troubles were his own problem to figure out, and they disposed of him. I don't need to tell you how or where that happens today. But it is the dream of God that it stop. And the church has been given the means to stop it. The church has been given the means to stop it. We're going to watch a short video clip now. It's a video of a Catholic priest speaking at a commencement exercise. He's a priest who works with gang members, and he's going to tell the story of how he and some of his gang member friends were speaking somewhere else. And I'd like us to take a listen. I hope you can hear and see. that Mario in our 30-year history at Homeboy is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end so that when he's lying in his coffin, 
there's no doubt. And so I'd never been in public with him, and we're walking, and people are like this, and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me. They'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each. They were terrified, but they did a good job. And honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. I invite them up for Q&A and and I said, yes, ma'am. And a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate. Mario steps up to the microphone. He's a tall drink of water, skinny and clutching the microphone. And he's terrified. Yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? Mario clutches his microphone and he's just terrified and he's trembling and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say when, when finally he blurts out, I just... And he stops and he retreats back to his microphone clutching, terrified retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands and now it's her turn to cry and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself and they were returned to themselves. And I think you go from here to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away and you stand with those whose dignity has been denied and you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear and you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless make those voices heard Last month, uh, Mary Elizabeth and I uh, and our two youth interns, Izzy and Bryce, we led a, a couple of weeks of what we called Urban Plunge. And uh, one, on the first day, we took them walking on the streets downtown and to uh, one of the homeless centers. And Mary Elizabeth passed on something she had received in her growing up years to our kids. She taught them that it's important to look people
people in the eye when you meet them and say, good morning, how are you? Have a good day. To treat them with dignity as a fellow human being in this place. And so we walked not only into the homeless center, but around the, a few blocks to see where homeless folks lived. And our kids did it, at least some of them. They tried that out. They tried it out on the streets and in the bus station and wherever we took them for those few days. They looked people in the eye, strangers that would otherwise be uh, in a category of fear and threat. And they said, good morning, how are you? Hope you have a good day. What does it mean to stand with someone, with widows or orphans or those who are basically unparented and have to raise themselves, or those who speak another language who are sojourners among us? What does it mean to not demonize but to stand with Somehow, it's got to mean reducing the distance. I can't stand with someone if I hold apart. To acknowledge somehow my common inheritance and inhabitants with that person or those people in this place, that somehow my well-being, my children's and grandchildren's well-being is connected to your and their well-being and prosperity. No one wanted to get in that boat except Jesus. They didn't want the risks. They didn't want the inconvenience. They saw no reason. And in their hearts, they had drawn a line down the center of that lake. And on the other side of that line were other people. But if they had not gone, they would have missed out on recognizing the Lord of wind and waves. They would have missed out on knowing how much God can do for them. They would have missed out on seeing how much God cared about them and what Jesus was willing to do for them in the, in the act of going over. May we, as we come to this table, understand this table as a place where our own community can be brought together. Kids in different schools, different cliques, adults of different neighborhoods, age groups. We can all share this one meal. That's the radical meaning of this meal that Christ died to make us one. 
And so I invite us now, after the anthem, we'll come forward to this meal, all of us invited, all of us loved by God, the objects of God's grace and power, and invited to stand together with the other. Amen.